Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. That song, His Mercy is More, was written by two artists who uh, had been reading from the letters of John Newton. And most of the lines were picked out of various letters that John Newton wrote. And if you're at all familiar with the history of John Newton, uh, you know that there was a long season in his life where he was a very great sinner. And the Lord saved him wonderfully. And in his experience, he knew that though his sins were many, the mercy of Christ is more. I love that line in the song. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. That's true. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Who but God would welcome sinners? He does it through his son, the Lord Jesus. Before we read from John 6, I'd like to ask that we pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you that the gospel is true and that the mercy of Christ is more. Now, as we come to consider your word, even in the passage we'll be looking at today, we read, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. So we are asking, Holy Spirit, come and give life. Deliver us from fleshly ways of thinking, from fleshly concerns. Your words are spirit and life. And now we come before them. Give us grace to receive them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we come to the end of our exposition of John 6. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a series in the Gospel of John for a few months now. And uh, this is actually the sixth sermon uh, in this chapter, in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. And uh, admittedly, our exposition of this chapter has been a little haphazard, uh, but I hope that it still has been to our spiritual benefit. Uh, These sermons have directed our attention to a wide range of themes, from God's care for disciples through life's storms, to the nature of true and false faith, to God's total sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. There's a lot going on in John 6. Now, I don't know about you. I've been reading the chapter a lot lately. Uh, Whenever I get through the 71 verses of John 6, I always feel a little bit conflicted. I wonder if you feel that way, uh, even from these sermons these past few weeks. The, The reason I feel so conflicted is because in John 6, you have some well, the most encouraging material in all of the Bible, uh, wonderful verses that I find uh, myself saying back to the Lord again and again and reflecting on in my own Christian experience. So uh, John 6, verse 20, uh, I say this often to myself when going through the storms of this life. What are the words of Jesus there? It is I, do not be afraid. John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's more wonderful than that? John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And then some verses we'll consider today, verses 68 and 69. What does Peter say to the Lord? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. 
Do you find yourself ever saying that to the Lord? Where are we gonna go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Profoundly encouraging verses nestled in this text. Uh, But then, at the same time, uh, these verses come to us in the context of a profoundly discouraging narrative. So you have crowds numbering in the thousands, following after Jesus, really for no other reason than that they want a lifetime supply of bread. And as soon as they figure out that Jesus is not going to give that to them, they depart from Him in mass. The one's positive response to Jesus by the crowds who were ready to make Him king in verse 15 turns into mass defection. In verse 66, where we read that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The 71 verses of this chapter can really be understood as one long expression of false faith that is ultimately exposed by Jesus as really rank unbelief. Down to the final verses, where Jesus alludes to that devil Judas who would betray him. John 6 is a discouraging narrative. It's nothing like John 4. Right, if you have been with us in this series, John 4, the woman at the well, wonderfully converted by God's grace, and there seems to be something of revival in this Samaritan town of Sychar, and the crowds believe on him. John 6 is in that way. The crowds leave Jesus as soon as they gain greater clarity on what he is offering and what he is calling them to. And so I feel a little conflicted, a little torn between encouragement and discouragement. Well, the final verses of the chapter that we'll consider today are emblematic of this larger tension that we see in the whole chapter between what is so discouraging and difficult to take in in the unbelief of the crowds and what is so wonderful and so edifying at the same time. So in this final sermon, we come really to the heart of what Jesus is driving at in these verses. I've said a few times now that John 6 is all about bread. From the miraculous provision of bread in the first 15 verses of the chapter to Jesus' warning to the crowds that they not labor for the bread that perishes, to Jesus' wonderful offer of himself as the bread of life to whoever hungers and whoever thirsts. Now today, we will see Jesus take that metaphor of bread, he's going to push it a little bit further uh, to the point, the breaking point for these crowds. So I want to open up these verses, verses 51 through 71, under four main headings, and we'll spend more time on the first than the next three. First of all, we have a difficult teaching, a difficult teaching, and that's from the perspective of the crowds. I hope it won't be from our perspective by the end of this message. A difficult teaching. Secondly, a sad response. Thirdly, a glorious confession. And fourthly and finally, an urgent question. A difficult teaching, a sad response, a glorious confession, and an urgent question. First of all, consider with me a difficult teaching. Uh, Look with me, if you would, at John 6, or read verses 51 through 58. Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verses 51 to 58, Jesus essentially says the same thing six times. Different nuances in the ways he might say it, but essentially says the same thing six times. There's three parts to what he's saying, this metaphor he's using of of bread. First of all, he wants to communicate that his flesh is the bread he offers for the life of the world. He's already referred to himself as the bread of life. Like He himself, in his person, is the bread of life. If you come to Jesus, you'll never hunger. If you believe on him, you'll never thirst. Now the focus becomes more narrow. The bread is not just generally his person. Now the focus is his flesh. And that will pervade the next several verses. The second aspect of the metaphor is that we, those who would believe on him, must eat his flesh. His his flesh is the bread. We need to eat the bread, his flesh. And then the third aspect of the metaphor is that if we eat his flesh, we will have eternal life. His flesh is the bread. We must eat his flesh. If we eat his flesh, we will have eternal life. Now remember, Jesus is using a metaphor. Don't push the metaphor too far. Don't take things too literally. There was a group of skeptics in the early church who took this too literally and thought that Christians must be cannibals because they eat flesh and drink blood and all of this. That's not the idea at all. Jesus is using a metaphor. So I want us to pick apart the metaphor so we can better understand what it is that Jesus is trying to communicate to us. So these three aspects, three truths, I think we're meant to see in these words from Jesus. First of all, Jesus gives his flesh for the life of the world. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will give his flesh, like his, his flesh, for the life of the world. And he says this, verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Remember the Apostle John's words to us in the first chapter, John 1, verse 14? And, and the Word, that is the pre-incarnate, pre-existent One who was with God in the beginning and indeed was God, the Word, verse 14 says, became flesh. There are at least a few reasons the Scriptures give for why the Son of God became flesh, but one of the reasons, indeed, the main reason that God the Son became flesh, became incarnate, had to occupy human flesh, is so that He could give His flesh in a sacrificial way for the life of the world, so that He could die as a substitute for sinful people. In God's redemptive plan, death is necessary for life to be given. More specifically, the death of God's own Son is necessary for eternal life to be given to sinners like you and me. Have you thought much about that lately? God Himself became flesh so that He can give Himself for the life of sinners like you and me. I just want to linger here for a moment because we're very close to the heart of the gospel here. I normally seek to offer Christ toward the end of the message, but I'm going to go ahead and stop and do it now. We're at the very heart of the Christian message here, that 
God's own Son came in human flesh so that He can go to the cross, suffer, bleed, and die as a substitute for sinners like you and me so that if we believe on Him and embrace His sacrifice by faith, we will be saved. It's right here in the text. The bread He will give for the life of the world is His flesh. Does that message come to your heart this morning with sweetness? That, that God the Son gave himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sinners. This really is the essence of the gospel. Jesus in my place. His flesh instead of mine. Giving himself up as a sacrifice so that we could have life. That's the gospel message. That God the Son has come in human flesh and he gives that flesh for the life of the world so that whoever believes on him will be saved. Well, the statement we have here in verse 51 where Christ says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, uh, is the most explicit statement so far in John's gospel pertaining to the death of Christ. It's the most explicit statement we've had thus far. You know how most of the gospels go, right? There's a record in the first several chapters of Jesus' ministry and then toward the end you're in the final week of his life and he, he suffers, you know, and is uh, charged and he goes to the cross and dies for the salvation of his people and he rises again. Uh, in John's gospel, we don't get many statements in the first 12 chapters or so alluding to the death that Jesus was going to die. So far, this is the most explicit statement we have. Of course, in John 1, I think it's verse 29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a hint there. What did Jews do with lambs? There was a sacrifice, a substitute in the place of the people. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 2, Jesus says to the Jews there, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, we learn in John 2 that that was totally lost on everybody who was there. They had no idea what he's talking about. They thought rather he was talking about destroying the physical temple. But we read that he actually was referring to his body, hinting again at this death that was going to come. But now we have, in John 6 verse 51, the most explicit statement we have so far. That this eternal life that Jesus offers, the salvation that Jesus offers, will come at a cost. It will require him to give his flesh that the world might have life. Jesus wants to make clear that as the bread of life, what he is offering is not daily manna to fill the stomach. Rather, this is the flesh of the incarnate Son of God given as a sacrifice to secure forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all those who believe on him. This is the first truth I think we're meant to see in this metaphor. The Lord Jesus will give his flesh for the life of the world. Now, the second truth we're meant to see in the metaphor, still under this difficult teaching from Jesus. Secondly, Jesus calls men and women to embrace him by faith. Jesus calls men and women to embrace him by faith. He's gonna give his flesh, and we're called to partake and to believe. I think that's what the metaphor is, is driving at. If Jesus is the bread of life, and if his flesh is true bread and his blood is true drink, we need to feast on Jesus. Meaning, we need to embrace his sacrifice by faith and depend upon it daily like we depend on food. 
Just like those Jews all those years ago under Moses sunk their teeth into the manna that was provided for them day by day, we need to feast on Jesus, on the gospel daily by faith. Don't make the metaphor more complicated than it has to be. Very simply, Jesus is saying you need to exercise faith in the gospel every day, depending on Jesus for your very life, partaking of that sacrifice that he has provided in his flesh. Now, friends, remember what I said a few weeks ago. Uh, To these Jews, nothing is more essential than bread. Bread was the staple diet of these Jews. You have a shortage of bread, you have a shortage of life. That's why I think they were instructed to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Like, give us this day that very thing that is essential to our very life. And Jesus says, I'm like that. Just like we need food in our stomachs every day to sustain life, we need to feast on Christ and upon his gospel every day because that is the source of our eternal life. We need to lay hold of the sacrifice by faith, the the bread, his flesh, given up for the life of the world, and to believe upon him for our life, our eternal life as sinners. But notice the verbs Jesus uses, eating and drinking. He doesn't say have faith. He says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Usage of these words, I think, highlights again for us something very important about the nature of faith. Remember, this is the way that John talks about faith. In John's gospel, he always uses active verbs to capture the nature of faith. Faith is always active. It's laying hold. It's participatory. Faith for John, for the Bible, for Christ, is not just agreeing with the facts, just holding a true thought about Jesus in your mind. Faith is having Jesus eating Jesus, drinking Jesus, coming to Jesus, touching Jesus, seeing Jesus, having Jesus. Faith is not just assenting to the facts about Jesus. It's never less than that. It's never less than that. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Like those facts must be believed, but it's always more than that. Faith, that is. It's not enough to believe the facts about Jesus cognitively, cerebrally, or in theory, philosophically. We must taste and see that the Lord is good. Faith is to love Him, to know Him, to experience Him as good and beautiful and wonderful and as the bread of life. It's to know what it's like to hunger for something and then to be satisfied have parched lips than have that thirst wonderfully quenched. If you don't know Jesus in this way, if you don't love Jesus in this way, perhaps you are not yet a Christian. To have faith in the Son of God is to delight in Him and to find in Him your soul's satisfaction. He is called the bread of life. As urgently, even more urgently than these crowds went after that bread that perishes, they're willing to follow Jesus across the sea to get that bread. Even more urgently than that, our souls should pant after the bread that endures to eternal life. Psalm 42, verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63 Verse 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is powerful language, cogent language, even sensory language. If you don't think feelings matter when it comes to faith, you don't understand the nature of faith. Faith is not mere mental assent. It is whole-souled satisfaction in Christ as the bread of life. It's delight in Him. It's love for Christ, dependence on Christ. I recently, um, there were two popular pastor theologians, really wonderful men, and uh, one of them was using a very famous analogy for faith. He said, faith is, is like um, sitting on a chair. You sit down, you trust that that chair is going to hold you up. You don't have to go around the chair and figure out how it was put together. You just trust. You depend. That chair is going to bear your weight. And, and, and the man was saying, understandably so, that's kind of what faith in Jesus is like. Then the other pastor theologian, I think, correctly observed, yeah, but it's actually more than that. You have to love the chair. You have to want the chair, delight in the chair. And that's sort of where the illustration breaks down, right? But he's right. Faith is not just Jesus lived, Jesus died. I can get on board with that. It was for me. I could agree. I could sign a decision card, come down to the front, give my life to Christ. That's fine. No, no, he's described as the bread of life, the solution to our soul's hunger. He's the living water, the solution to our soul's native thirsts and cravings. To come to Christ in faith is to have him, to eat him, to drink him, to touch him, to taste him, to see him, to know him. It's to delight in him. I think that what I'm talking about now is of the utmost importance if we're to understand the nature of faith. It's not just agreement. It isn't just to believe Jesus is right. It's to love Jesus. It's to treasure Jesus. So I just encourage you, ask this question of yourself. Do I believe in God? And do I believe the basic facts of the gospel are true? Good. If you could answer that, yes. Saving faith is never less than that. But is that all I believe? There must be more. Ask yourself, do I truly love God? Do I find my soul's satisfaction and delight in knowing Jesus and having Him as my Savior, my Comforter, my Messiah, and my God? Do I have any experience of Him as the bread of life? Does my heart run out to Him in worship and adoration? Is He everything I love and everything I want? Does the prospect of an eternity spent with Him thrill my heart? You children, you need to understand this about faith. Listen, we don't just want you to agree that your Sunday school teachers are right. We don't want you to just believe that what they're telling you is true. We want you to love Jesus. We want you to have Jesus. To know him, to relate to him, to experience him. Listen, the gospel the Christian faith that we try to teach you is not just about learning all the facts that you can learn, storing them up as much as you can. It's important you learn the facts. You must learn the facts. But what we're after is far more than that. What we pray for you is a whole lot more than that. That you'll actually know Jesus as your Savior. 
as the one who satisfies your hungers and your thirsts and your needs, that you would have him, that you would love him. And that's what we pray for you. And that's what your Sunday school teachers want for you, for you to actually know Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I need to move more quickly now, the third truth that we're meant to see in the metaphor. Of course, Jesus gives his flesh for the life of the world. Secondly, Jesus calls men and women to embrace him by faith. Thirdly, Jesus promises eternal life. And I'll just be very brief here. We've talked about this already. Verse 57 says, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The idea is the life that the Father has and that the Son has, we will have if we believe on Jesus. If we're connected to him as the bread of life, we will live forever. We will live forever. You often hear people nowadays, preachers say nowadays, you know, the gospel is not just about some pie-in-the-sky religion where we get to live forever and, and you know, have this wonderful paradise or something like that. And I get what they're getting at when they say that. But don't sap the glory and the wonder out of living forever in paradise with Jesus. Jesus is appealing to the most basic needs these people feel. They're willing to sacrifice their entire lives and their families to go find this bread that perishes. And Jesus says, you know what's better than that? Bread that endures to eternal life that I will give you. If you would come to me, you will live forever. Everyone wants to live forever. Everyone wants to live forever. Our artists and poets sing about it all the time. There are whole wings of the healthcare industry that try to somehow fool people into thinking that they can become younger. Everyone wants to live forever. Only Jesus can give you eternal life. And to these very simple people who just want life, he says, I can give you that if you come to me and believe. Well, so much for the difficult teaching. You say, that doesn't sound like a very difficult teaching. That sounds like a wonderful teaching. Yeah, well, we'll see in a minute how these crowds interpreted the words of Jesus. So consider with me, secondly, a sad response. A difficult teaching, now secondly, a sad response. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying or a difficult teaching. Who can listen to it? This is a hard saying. This is a difficult teaching. Now, don't hear in those words like, hmm, interesting. This is a very, we're going to have to go back to some of our philosophers and consider what this means and probe a little more deeply in this metaphysical conundrum that Jesus is presenting to us. That's not at all what they mean. When they say this is a hard saying, they mean this is abrasive. This is difficult. I don't like this. I won't stand for this. This is a bitter saying. And if this is what he's teaching, we can't go along with him anymore. They don't perceive anything wonderful, anything glorious, anything life-giving in Jesus' words. Rather, the crowds think this is a hard saying. This is bitter to us. This is difficult that we won't stand for it. Now, six verses from now, the crowds are going to leave, finally. There's been hints at it. In verse 66, they're going to leave. And so we should ask, why are they leaving him? On one level, 
They are leaving him because they don't believe him, because they don't love him, because they don't want him. They see what Jesus is offering and they say, that is gross and offensive to us. That's a hard saying, that's bitter to us and we don't want that. They don't want him. They're doing precisely what they want to do in leaving Jesus. They want the bread that perishes. He's not giving it to us. We'll go find it somewhere else. So on one level, at least, that's why the crowds are leaving him. But lest we think that Jesus is a failure or somehow helpless and ineffectual to win people or has somehow fumbled or lost control of the situation, he tells us what's really going on behind the scenes, and he wants us to know this. He wants us to know this. I I think it was last week I said, this whole narrative in John 6, he's talking to the crowds, but he has this eye toward his believing disciples who are looking on at this whole scene. That's us, if we believe on him. He's got an eye toward us. How should we interpret what's going on here? And this is why Jesus says what he says, beginning in verse 63. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, referring to Judas. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then we get verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus says, it's no wonder you don't believe my words. My words are spirit and life and your flesh. You're stuck in a fleshly way of thinking and you can't come to me. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. You don't believe because you weren't chosen by my Father. If you were chosen, he would break through your native thirsts and cravings for darkness and sin and give you an appetite for life and light. But because he has not chosen you, you will remain in your willful, dead, chosen, sinful hostility toward God. Because God has not chosen you, you will get exactly what you want, which is eternal death and not eternal life. See, Jesus will get the final word before these crowds depart. He says, I'm no failure. My Father and I are completely in control. No surprises here. Even over this sad response from the crowds, Jesus is sovereign. Not the main point of the text, but just a little application here on the side. We need never be discouraged when we see things happening in a way that might seem discouraging to us. God is always in control. I think to these disciples it would have looked like, you know, our whole program of building the kingdom and the nations being gathered in. It doesn't look very optimistic right now. We can't even persuade even a few from these crowds of thousands to come. Jesus was totally in control. Never forget that. In situations that look disappointing, discouraging, when the odds are against us, Christ is in control. Jesus is never phased. Jesus is never surprised. There are no accidents with God. 
And we need not fear, for God has will that his truth will triumph through his people. One more thing to notice on this point of the sad response of the crowds. Verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Does that mean they had faith and lost it? No, we know that's not true. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So what happened? There's a sense in which, this text teaches us, there's a sense in which you can be a disciple of Jesus and not truly be a disciple of Jesus. Don't be fooled into thinking that everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. There are millions who follow after some version of Christianity, some illusion of Jesus. In this case, something like maybe the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Follow Jesus, he'll miraculously produce bread all the time so that you'll never have to work another day in your life. There are all sorts of people following after something they call Christianity, some illusion of Jesus, who are not truly followers of Christ. This was a mixed crowd made up mostly of false converts who were following Jesus for something other than what he was truly offering. And friends, this still happens today. We shouldn't be ignorant or naive. People can look like disciples for a long time before they're exposed as false. It's one of the reasons uh, why we've insisted in our, our membership process Uh, to actually have membership interviews, to get to know people, hear their confession of faith and their testimony and what they believe the gospel to be, because we don't assume that everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. I want to know what you believe about Jesus. More than that, we say we want to see evidence of a transformed life, because there are false disciples and there are true disciples, and we have this sort of in an in-your-face sort of way in this passage here, so we should be aware We should not be fooled that there are false converts, false disciples, and that's part of what makes this response so sad. Reveals to us that what once looked so promising, so positive, so authentic, was really an illusion. Now thirdly, thirdly, we've seen the difficult teaching, sad response. Now thirdly, a glorious confession. A glorious confession. Some of my favorite words in all the Bible Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In a chapter that highlights so many expressions of false faith, Don't these words from Peter come to us with peculiar power? This feels like a cup of cold water in a chapter that's otherwise a desert of false faith. And here we have these words from Peter. Jesus essentially says, guys, what are you going to do? They've all left me. Will you follow them also? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? Lord, you know. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Back to the synagogue? Back to the scribes and the Pharisees? We're going to go to the Romans? We're going to go to John the Baptist? Lord, where are we going to go? 
And this text asks that question to us as well. Where are we going to go? Where are you going to go? To your spouse? You who are single, you think a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a mate is going to fix everything and give you life and satisfy all your cravings and thirsts? You're going to go to your children and have in them absorbed all your soul's satisfaction and delight? You're going to go to personal achievement, even to the church? Listen to me. Do not put messianic expectations on your spouse. You want to be disappointed? Look to your spouse for eternal life. Look to your spouse for personal fulfillment and salvation. Look to your spouse to be like the bread of life to you and satisfy all your hungers and all your thirsts and all your cravings. Don't put bread of life expectations on your children or your grandchildren. How are you going to be satisfied? I'll have as many gatherings with my kids and my grandkids as I can possibly have. I'll have as many weekends away at the beach and I'll just suck it all up. And that will be it for me. Is that where you're going to go? Don't put lordship expectations on your pastor. Go to him expecting that somehow he's going to provide for all of your needs and make your life just how it needs to be and put together the broken pieces of your past and satisfy you in all the ways you need to be satisfied. Don't even go to brothers and sisters in the church for that. Now listen, if we have realistic biblical expectations for our spouses, for our children, for our coworkers, for our pastors, for our church members, well then we can enjoy them in the way God intended us to enjoy them. But if we put eternal life expectations on anyone but Jesus, they'll profoundly disappoint us. My friend, don't ask anyone to be Jesus for you but Jesus. To whom shall you go? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And, and Peter's this sort of statement that issues forth, it's the statement of our hearts, isn't it? Where are we going to go? Who can satisfy us? Who can make us well? Who can give us life and light and salvation and security? Who can put together the pieces of my broken past? Who can handle all my baggage and all my sin? Praise God, Christ Jesus can. He alone has the words of eternal life. Then Peter says, to whom shall we go? You, Lord, have the words, the words of eternal life. I don't know about you, I find it a little bit interesting that Peter says you have the, the words of eternal life. In a passage that's all about bread, why doesn't he say, you, Jesus, are the bread of life? You have the bread that we need. He says you have the words of eternal life. Why does he say that? Why doesn't he talk about bread again and stay in the world of the metaphor? I think it's because Peter gets it. He sees into the metaphor what Jesus is driving at. What does it mean to feast on Jesus as the bread of life? It's to believe his words. Jesus said in verse 63, after saying he must be had as the bread of life, he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And Peter says here in verse 68, you have the words of eternal life. So here's what I'm driving at, to feast on Jesus daily Peter understands, is to go to his words daily. How do we have Jesus as the bread of life? We have his words. 
We take in his promises daily. We believe the gospel daily. You want to feast on Jesus in the way he calls us to in this passage? Cultivate a habit of personal devotions. Now, is that too prosaic an application for such a grand text like this? Are you really telling me that after all of this, we need to read our Bibles more? That's precisely what I'm telling you. How do you actually have a relationship with Jesus? He's not here in the flesh. He's not. But what do we have? We have the words. The words that are spirit and life. The words of eternal life, as Peter says, you have in your laps, in your hands, on your device, the words of the Lord Jesus to you. And we can go again and again daily. We could come to the gathering of worship week after week and hear the words of life open up to us. Jesus' words are spirit and life. You want to know Jesus? You want to have him as the bread of life? You want to enter into relationship with him and experience him and know him and feast on him? Go to his words. A lot of people talking about Jesus told me this, told me that. Not if it didn't come from his word. You want Jesus to talk to you? You got the words right before you. Go and study him out and take in his promises daily. Pray those promises back to God in prayer. Seek him out as you find him on the pages of Scripture. As you find his words, which are spirit and life. Brothers and sisters, we have nowhere else to go but the word of God. And there we find the life-giving words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Where shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. To feast on Jesus is not some vague indistinct ethereal experience. It is to take in Jesus' words and to believe them, to know them, to have them. It's to sit under the preaching of God's Word. It's to cling to the promises of Christ. It's to say those words back to God in prayer. We have life in Jesus because we have His words, and they abide in us, and they shape us, and they mold us, and they make us more like His Son, the Lord Jesus. They tell us who Christ is, and what He's like, and what He promises to do for poor sinners like us. Jesus is saying, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And because those words are true, we're safe. We have life. Because those words are true, we are happy forever in you. So much for the glorious confession. Fourthly and finally, we've seen a difficult teaching, we've seen the sad response, and we've seen thirdly a glorious confession, very briefly, and in closing, really, this fourth point, we have an urgent question. An urgent question. It's an urgent question I want to ask of you, but it comes out of this text. To whom shall you go? We have two responses to Jesus here. Crowd see what he's offering, they leave. Jesus puts the question to his disciples, are you going to go too? Peter says, to whom shall we go? Everyone's going somewhere. I don't know where these crowds are going, maybe back to the market to find some bread they could buy. Maybe back to sit under the teaching of the Pharisees. They're going somewhere. And Jesus is saying, you're either going to something else or you're going to me. And Peter says, where are we going to go? 
Where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So I ask you this question. Who are you going to go to? You are, you will go somewhere for life, for satisfaction, for joy, for security, for safety. And I'm just asking you, where are you going to go? That question sort of screams out of this text. Where are you going to go? Now, a lot of people act as though they're just sort of wandering around, doing the next thing. You know, we set up our calendars and our schedules, and I go and I do this, and then I do this, and then I do this. I'm not really thinking in terms of the long term or something like that. I don't think that's actually true. Everybody wants life. We'll do whatever we can to sustain life and to have life. Like, you're going to eat lunch today, right? You need some food in order to live. You're not going to go without lunch today. You're going to go get you some lunch. And if you're in the hospital and you're given some medication, you're going to depend on that medication for life, and you're going to ask the doctors to strategize and think about as many ways as they can to keep you alive. And in that dying season of life, you're going to try to perpetuate life as long as you can. We all want to live. We all want to live. Jesus appeals in this text to that most basic instinct in people. The desire to, to live forever, to be safe forever, to have eternal life. And Jesus is making the very obvious point. In this fallen world, you cannot get that anywhere else. And so I ask you, any success in finding life somewhere else, finding satisfaction somewhere else? Did you find it in that boyfriend or that girlfriend? Did you find it in that sought-after career and that sought-after job? Did having those kids just put it all together for you? Only Jesus can give us eternal life, and he offers it freely to all those who believe on him. He says, I can satisfy your hunger. I can satisfy your thirst. Peter says, to, to whom shall we go? Where can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so I appeal to you this morning. You come to Jesus, all his promises are true. There are many here in this room who have found these promises to be true, who have in him everlasting life. He offers it freely to you. Come to him. Partake of the sacrifice he's provided in his own flesh, and he will save you. He will have you. I invite you to go to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and to believe on him, and his promise is that if you believe on him, you will have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Your words are spirit and life. And so please come now and move upon our hearts. Do that thing that only you can do. And give life, life eternal, to all those who hunger and all those who thirst. Would you satisfy them now through the gospel? 
May you give to us the bread that endures to everlasting life, even yourself. Even that gospel that tells us of the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus has made for sinners. Come now and give life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.